also wanted to pray for our city right now. And obviously, just a lot of turmoil, um, just with uh, everything with Freddie Gray and with I, I'll, I'll just say from my heart without going, that's a, a whole nother sermon, right? But I, I feel pretty angry. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I'll, I'll say I feel angry. I feel angry at uh, injustices that, that exist in our systems, in our, in our city, and, and in our country. I feel angry about that. Um, I feel angry about people that get more upset and rise up about, like, cars getting vandalized than, like, a man, young man losing his life. That gets me really angry. Like, you, you want to get me, that gets me really angry. Um, I get really angry about, like, so-called activists that don't even live here that come and to get, like, their face on social media and to get, like, some Twitter cred, like, blow things up and talk about shutting down and saying they don't live here. That gets me really angry. Um, so there's a lot of things that get me angry, but I'm, I'm reminded um, that, Ultimately, again, in our hashtag culture, um, a young man lost his life. There's, um, there, there's a mother who, who doesn't have a, a, a boy anymore. There's someone who's lost a brother. And this is just happening in too many places. And, you know, and, and this is where people get upset and say, don't inject race. I, you know, I'm not even talking about that. Just the fact that a human being made in the image of God... We, we, like, lose sight of what's going on. People are losing lives. The systems are broken. Sin is not just an individual, personal thing. Sin has infected our world. Our world is broken. And as a church, we take um, active steps, obviously, but I, I'm reminded because I'm a doer. But I need to be a prayer as well. Yes, we take action. Whatever that looks like for you, we take action. Um, and I'm not legislating. This is how you need to respond. I think everyone's got to work with your own conscience. We take action. But, guys, we, if you're a person of God, we need to pray as well. That, that as much as we put our credence in systems being fixed by more education or whatnot, and that's all great, ultimately this is a spiritual problem. And we need God to work. So uh, can I ask you to stand up with me right now? And I'm going to ask you to just join hands with whoever is right next to you. Because one of the best things we can do as a church, and I'm going to go into this a little bit more in the message for today, but one of the best things we can do as we pray is to be a church that we're, we're just being made of people who represent many different cultures. Again, this is not just for a nice politically correct idea. This is saying we believe that God can heal the rifts that exist between people. And anyone that says there are no divisions, we don't need divisions, they don't live in a real world. That's real. As educated as we've gotten, I think the world's getting more fractured, at least in our country. So the church is the place where we start and saying, hey, we're, we're one race together, one human race, built of many, many beautiful different segments, and we're going to fight together on this. Amen? So join me in praying for our city. Pray for Baltimore City. Pray for the, the Gray family. Pray however you need to be led to pray right now. And let's do that for a little bit, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Lord, we um, 
we readily admit that sometimes people have over-spiritualized things. Christians have over-spiritualized and said we just need to pray more and that's it. And, and I, I agree in some sense we need to pray. But, Lord, that we would also be people who hit the street. And if we believe this gospel, we believe this idea that Jesus Christ entered our world and pressed into our flesh, Lord, the proper response is that we go into our broken world and we press into other people's flesh as well, people who are perhaps in every way different than us, but with the reconciling power of the gospel. So we pray that, but Lord, that we would not forget that we do pray, though. And Lord, that ultimately, um, what's going to change our world? These nice little texts are fine, but Lord, we need to see people come to know you. We need your Holy Spirit to move and start with your church. Start with that right here, Lord. Um, Work within our own midst, God, breaking down walls. And then we pray for the healing of Baltimore. Lord, we know that right now across the country, people are um, probably even joking about our city, that this is just what you expect in Baltimore. But Lord, we expect more. That this is a place where you would shine brightly, Lord, and use your church. And there will be hands not just united in little congregations all over the place, but across the city, Lord. Bring healing. Start with your people, God. That we believe in a God who does heal, even when it seems so hopeless, Lord. So move in our midst. We pray for the Gray family. Lord, my heart is broken in the midst of all of these different tragedies that keep occurring. People forget that real lives are, are being shattered. Real families are being just distraught and heartbroken. Real police officers that serve you faithfully are are just under the threat of their lives. Real people are involved here, Lord. So would you make that, let us not just get excited with the headlines, but Lord, remember that real flesh and blood's involved and that we would live out what it means to be part of that healing process. So we thank you, God, for not giving up on us and let us not give up on what you're doing, even in our city right here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, you know, as we, um, I think we've got our, we're introducing our sermon. Uh, that was actually uh, with Ernest, Baltimore Urban, Urban Program. That's what he's doing. Next slide, please, for our sermon. Um, we, well, we are introducing this new series called Christ Our Joy as we're going through the book of Philippians. Um, and, and basically, the, the idea of this book, if you would boil it down, it's talking about the joy found in the gospel. And this morning, I'm looking at this idea of joyful thanksgiving. And it might seem kind of ludicrous after all we've just talked about with brokenness throughout the world and even right here in our own local city, this idea of um, how do we find joy? How do we give thanksgiving in joy? But we're going to jump into it because I, I, I would suggest there's hope found in the gospel. So let me start. Do we have verses coming out? We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1. I'll start in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be sure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And I like Paul, not just because he can write long sentences that run on and on and on and on without any periods, but I like him because he wrote much of the solid works of doctrine that we see in the New Testament. Paul was the author of a lot of things, so the nerd in me likes that. But my appreciation for Paul, actually, it, it falls along a much more practical line because I like the dude because he was a missionary church planter. So as, as a missionary church planner myself, I feel a certain affinity with him. As we've started the village, and hopefully God would lead us to start other churches as well, I find so much encouragement from this man, Paul, who was so passionate about people hearing about Jesus Christ that he started as many churches as he could so that more and more people could hear about Jesus. Another thing I appreciate about Paul is that if he lived in today's America, he'd probably be pretty shocked, but um, he'd probably also be going to places like New York and Chicago and L.A. because Paul's missionary work was predominantly done in major urban centers. He just had a passion for the city. So I imagine that Paul maybe would have even been planting a church in a city like Baltimore, major urban city. And, you know, I, I, again, I'm imagining last night people watching CNN or Fox News across the country and looking at their kids like, this is why I will never want you to move to Baltimore. Look at those crazies. Look at You're never. Stay safe. And, and, but Paul would say, no, I love the city. That's where God moves. That's where he's present. And, and he believed that planting the gospel in strategic cities was strategic. In these urban centers, you needed expressions of the news of Jesus Christ. So what Paul would do, he would go to a new city. He would start making disciples. He would start raising up followers of Jesus, seeing people get converted, um, raise up leaders who would start pastoring churches and keep planting more and more churches. Then he would eventually leave. Don't worry. I'm, I'm not like Paul in that sense. I'm, I'm, I'm rooted here. He would leave to go to another city to start more churches because he would have raised up pastors and leaders who were taking care of those churches. But then my man Paul, right, he's got a heart, so he would write letters back and forth. Some of you like pen pals, you would have loved Paul because he loved writing letters. He would just write letters to these different churches to follow up with them, and they would send, it's like, dear Paul, right, dear Abby, they would send him like, what? hey, man, these people that you convert, they're like getting all jacked up, not acting all crazy. What do we do with that? And Paul would write responses back, addressing some of the concerns of the churches or encouragement. Um, because they often had issues or questions like any growing church does. So Paul's words would be full of instruction, correction, encouragement. So Philippians, in a similar way, it's a letter like this. He's writing to the church that had started in Philippi and, and the city. Um, but this letter, if you read it, and, and hopefully you'll follow along with us in this series, it's a little bit different from some of his other letters. Because if you read some of his other letters, it's addressing like doctrinal concern. Or like they've just gone cr crazy. So you're like reading and you're like, ooh, ooh, Paul, ooh, ooh, oh, couldn't you take it a little easy there? Ooh, boo, well, watch your pen, man. And he's just like hammering up, saying, how could you do this? Don't you know any better? Didn't I teach you this stuff? And you're all going, acting all wacky and crazy. Man, you represent Jesus. What are you doing? Um, and, and if you study Paul, he's not usually known as a touchy-feely guy. We usually think of him as like a big nerd that just like goes around talking like big, flowery language. Um, just about theology, no feeling. But man, as you hear him talk to the Philippian church here, it, it's just he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. 
And there's no correcting anything that they've done wrong. Rather, it's just displaying this great affection he has for these people. And, and you want, I want to make sure here, it's not that Paul doesn't love every church he started. You know, I can imagine you're in, like, a uh, church in, like, Colossae. say, man, Paul acting all nice to the Philippians. What do we do to him, you know, except for heresy? What do we do to him? Uh, but you, you see here in verse 3, right, um, he loves all the churches, but he particularly has a passionate um, affection for the Philippian church. Verse 3, he writes about how he's always joyfully thankful when he's praying for them. Sometimes you pray for people and joyful thanks is not what automatically comes into your mind. But with this church, he was like, just the memories of them would bring him like, I can imagine him smiling as he's praying for them. So thankful. In verse 7, it says that he, he feels this affection as he holds them in his heart. So, so these Christians, they're not just people he did ministry to. They're friends. They're people he loves. So our question, why did he hold them in such high affection here? And I think it's important to know some of the history Paul had with this church. So we're going to look at the book of Acts, Acts 16, which historically describes some of what's going on here. So as a missionary, Paul's goal, again, was to take the gospel to these major urban centers, and Philippi was one of them. Um, and Philippi was located along this major commercial road in the Roman Empire, and it was just full of industry and culture. And Philippi, this is another significant thing, it, it was also located in northern Greece. So it was the first country in Europe that would receive the gospel. So it's pretty significant stuff here. Um, so it made sense that he would want to preach the gospel. So let's look at Acts chapter 16. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 11. So it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside uh, the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So it's the Sabbath. And Paul, like any other Jesus nerd, he's in a new city. He's like, hey, let's go find church. Let's go find church. So he and his companions, they're looking for a place to worship, which to them would mean a synagogue. A synagogue where what they commonly did in these cities they went to, they would find a synagogue, the local synagogue, and then they would preach about Jesus there. Um, but they don't find a gathering like that in the city of Philippi. There's, there's nothing that exists like that. Instead, basically, they run into a woman's Bible study. They run into a group of women studying the word together. Isn't that a beautiful sight? A group of women studying the word together, and they meet this woman, Lydia. So Lydia, she's from the city of Thyatira, which means there's basically a good chance that she was ethnically Asian. You've probably never heard that in a sermon before, right? But there's a good chance that if she's from the city, she's probably ethnically Asian. And along with being from Thyatira, which was another important city, it says she's got a house in Philippi, which means this woman got some coin. She, she's rich. She's, um, she's also part of the high-powered fashion industry. So she would have been on, like, Bravo Network and stuff. I mean, she's, she's um, tied in. But here's the beautiful thing. We see she's also hungry to know God. 
She's got a hunger in her heart for God. So she's sitting here. She's wanting to learn from the Bible. She's listening, and she's hearing the law. And most likely, she's an intellectual woman. This is one smart cookie, right? She wants to know, how do I obey God? Teach me his law. I know I'm not perfect, but is that what I'm supposed to do to obey, to be right with God? But like any of us, if you hear the law, but you don't hear about Jesus Christ, you're just confused. And that's where this woman is. She's learning a lot about the law, but she's confused because she doesn't know about Jesus yet. So into that context comes Paul. Paul and his little buddies, and they explain the gospel to her. And, and man, don't you love it? She immediately believes. Someone's come with the good news of Jesus. She believes along with her whole family, and they get baptized. And she must have a really nice place to live because she then invites Paul and his friends to stay with them. This is how the church in Philippi got started from this, from this uh, woman, the conversion of this high society business woman. Then we go on to the next inter- interaction after this in verse 16. It gets a little rougher, but it's still good. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Some of you are thinking, man, can I do that to people who just follow me around and annoy me and give them a, I don't know if this is prescriptive here, right? But verse 9, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So if you caught what was happening, there was this, this young woman, She's basically a slave because she's got these demonic possession and she can uh, divine different things. She's a fortune teller. So you got some corrupt dudes who are making much money off her. They're selling her her gifts, her abilities here. Paul's just getting annoyed because he's following and she's telling the truth, right? She's talking about Jesus, but he's just going nuts at it. So he just turns out, stop, just get out of her. Can I just eat in peace, please? I mean, I don't know if that's what I, that's what I would have been saying. Right? I just want to have a lunch without someone yelling about all the stuff. And the, the problem is, you would think, oh, that's great news. The demon got taken out of her, except the men who were making a lot of money off her thinking, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you just took away our cash cow. What's going on? And if you look at these two women, right, you got Lydia, high-powered businesswoman, and you got this slave girl. Lydia was high-powered. This Greek girl was most likely impoverished, enslaved, exploited. They met Lydia through a Bible study. They met this young woman because she was just going nuts in the street. And because they're so different, Paul is showing us what it means to be all things to all people so that they might hear the gospel. And with Lydia, he probably engaged her intellectually, used reason, showed her, hey, this is what you've been learning and studying. Here's what it really means. And for Lydia, she was like, yes, thank you. I've just been waiting for someone to explain that to me. Um, with, with this young Greek woman, it's like a Pentecostal tent meeting, right? It's like, devil be gone. Boom, okay. It, it's different. With, the, with Lydia, it's like a lecture series. This girl, it's like stuff you would watch on late night TV, right? But we see the next conversion to this new church, Lydia, and now this young uh, Greek woman. We move on to verse 20. It says, and when they had uh, brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. 
and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. So when you and I think of stocks, we think like 1700s in America and people with funny hats and like little turkeys on the side, like with their hands and their legs and these things. And basically public shaming, right? Just stand out there for a while and everyone laughs at them. Um, when, when, when we're talking about stocks here, it's, these are torture devices. These were things that were set up to contort your body in such a painful manner and keep you there. These were torture devices. And, and notice, these are not the instructions the jailer was given. They, he was told, just keep them safe now. But he puts them in the stocks. This is not a nice guy. Maybe he does his job well, but he's not a nice guy. Look what happens in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Wow. That's just awesome. We see another salvation. A whole bunch of them, right? The whole family. God keeps adding to his family in Philippi, but it's everyone's different than one another. This jailer, basically, he's a blue-collar, probably like ex-military guy who's manning the jail cells. He's not interested in sitting down in like a Bible study to talk about the facets of the gospel. And what does it mean in the philosophy? He's not interested in that. I mean, he's probably not interested in going to a tent meeting and everyone going all crazy spiritually. I mean, I'm guessing he's not interested in that. He's just a guy who works hard. He probably just wants to get home to his well-ordered home. I mean, in today's world, he'd be your, probably your average middle-class guy who just wants to get home to be able to catch the O's game. That, that's who this guy probably is. So how's the gospel speak to him? In those days, if you were a jailer in a prison, you had the responsibility for the people in jail. So if there's a jailbreak and if everyone's gone, your life is then gone because you haven't done your job. The people who are under your care have escaped. So similarly to a lot of us, this guy identified himself by what he did. And here, what he did was be a total failure. He messed up big time. So it makes sense that he would want to kill himself. But Paul shows him a different way. And, and I mean, first it started with the whole singing and praying, right? How nuts is that? That you jail these people and all they're singing is like, we love you, Lord. And they're just praying and singing. You're like, man, what kind of weirdo? What are they on? You know, give me some of that. And, but then now they have the chance to escape. There's clear, they can get out of there. But what happens? They stay because they care about him. 
And he's able to see with his own eyes the power of the gospel here. One, I mean, he witnesses the power of God in a miracle, right? He sees a miracle happen. But I would say just as importantly, he witnesses the power of God and the mercy that he receives. That those he had treated poorly, those he had put into these stocks, those who he had just probably mocked and, you know, made fun of or just maybe he, I mean, it says he treated their wounds so they were beaten. Well, how do they respond to them when they have the chance to run? They're kind. They tell them, we're not going anywhere. We're here with you, buddy. Hear about Jesus. And we see him and his whole family respond in salvation and they get baptized. This is how the church starts in Philippi. You got a Jewish fashionista businesswoman. You got this demon-possessed girl. And you got this blue-collar ex-GI loyally working for the Roman government. And I'm gathering when Paul was putting together his strategy for the Philippian church, he had no idea. Like, he's not putting down in his letters to his supporters, yeah, I'm going to go look for some businesswomen who do fashion and Bravo types. And I'm going to look for, like, I want, like, demon-possessed girls who are, like, driving everyone crazy. Oh, yeah, and give me a jailer who's going to jail me. I'm guessing he had no clue what he's going on here. But God has given him into a, a given him a glimpse into the beautiful way that the Spirit of God will redeem this diverse city, and and how He's going to bring reconciliation in the gospel, and it's not just going to be reconciliation to God. It's not just going to be telling people how you can be right with God, but He's also going to be telling them how you can be right with one another. People you might have nothing to do with, nothing in common with. Jesus takes a whole bunch of strangers, he makes them family. Amen? He takes a whole bunch of people with society, say, you got nothing in common here. And he says, now you're family. And guys, as we take all of this in, I mean, I I get excited about it because I can start to see why Paul has such thankful joy when he prays for this church. Because we would say it's probably been about 10 to 15 years since he started the church when he's writing this letter. And I'm guessing as he's writing it, he's not just trying to be polite, but he's genuinely just full of heartfelt thanksgiving. Because as he's writing it, I'm guessing he's imagining like Lydia. And he's imagining this, this, this uh, demon-possessed girl. And imagining the jailer. And they bring him such affection. Because he's played a real part in their spiritual lives. And it's a reminder for him that the gospel cannot be stopped. And no matter what cultural walls exist, God, if he wants to do something, it's going to happen. And that's why he can say that beautiful thought there when you look back at verse 6. Where it says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He knows God will finish what he started because he has seen with his own eyes the miraculous power that was needed to get it started in the first place. Because he has seen how powerfully God brought this thing together, how can he not believe that God is going to bring it home? He knows this is not a flash into pan experience because, I mean, he sees, as it's described in verse 5 there, he knows this is not just a fly-by-night because he's seen how their faith has been active in their partnership. And when we say partnership here, this is talking about financial partnership along with other relational things. This is also financial. That As he's gone from Philippi and gone to other places with the good news of Jesus, these people have supported him. 
he knows that their faith is real because they weren't just there for a tent meeting and got all excited when he left. They continued to support him. He's writing this letter from jail, and we're going to look at that next week, right? He's writing this letter right now from jail. Back then when you were in jail, it's not like America where they take pretty good care of you. I mean, honestly, as much as we talk about the U.S. prison system, they give you food. You didn't get that then. It was up to your family and friends to bring you food. So he had all these supporters who were giving him financially the ability, even when he was sitting in prison, even when he went to these different cities in the name of Jesus. So he can tell, hey, this is something real in their lives. They really believe this stuff. And and because he knows this is not just for a moment's experience, he's able to pray confidently, as we see in verses 9 to 11, that they would grow in their knowledge and wisdom, that they would grow in their moral discernment and their fruit of right living. And guys, I I just, I I don't think it's coincidental that this was the message for this week because this is what brings me hope. Even when I look upon my city last night and feel, man, is it even worth it? (laughs) This is what brings me hope as I look upon Baltimore because I think about my own city. Because, you know, let's be real. There's a lot of pain and division in our city right now. Whether along uh, racial and ethnic lines, whether along socioeconomic lines. I'm even in our own neighborhood in here in Hamden. There's divisions along, hey, you from here? Or are you just coming in here to get rich off the neighborhood now? There's divisions all over the city like this. And there's a lot of pain. It's a lot of brokenheartedness. And ultimately, the solution to that is not more protests or, or not more like cultural awareness training programs. And I'm not saying those things are not valuable. I think they're actually really valuable. Uh, But ultimately, those are not going to be our solutions. The solution is going to be more and more genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Ultimately, our solution, our hope for our city is to see, just like Philippi, more and more people come to say, I follow this Jesus and it makes a difference in my life. And that's got to be our prayer as we think about what we're doing here at the village. That, that we, as we talk about being a, a multicultural church, again, it's not just because that's kind of a popular thing nowadays. I've got people nowadays, like, emailing me or, like, through Twitter or whatever. Hey, how do you build a church like that? Because that looks like it would be really cool to do. I usually just ignore it, right, because I don't want to get angry over the over email. But it's, it's not for that. But it's this idea that we want to see more and more diverse groups of people come to follow Jesus. Because the more people that follow Jesus, the more our city will be impacted. The more people, especially new people that come to follow Jesus, the more we're going to see mothers and fathers who maybe have just, their whole life has been a train wreck in their family, start to understand that God has given them a gift in these children and how to raise them, not just by trying to be a good kid, but in the knowledge of Jesus. The more people follow Jesus means the more police officers we're going to have. And whatever you believe about the police system in our city, you have to say there's some brokenness. It doesn't mean everyone's broken, but there's brokenness. What's our hope? Training, sure. But our hope is also that more and more Christians will become police officers. That young men and women in our city who are sick of the system would say, you know what, I want to be a part of the solution. And as they follow Jesus, as they love Jesus, they would say, help me to be a cop. Help me to be a different cop. Bring peace. We need 
more followers of Jesus in our city, not just because this is some cultural mandate that we want more Christian presence, but we believe that there are the more genuine Christ followers you have in the city, the more impact there will be for good. The more that light will sh- start to shine in a city. And guys, and this, this is what keeps me going at times when I get tired. What would it look like where our city looks at what's going on here at the village and they see a, a multicultural sense of disciples, people from Baltimore and people from like literally halfway around the world, people born and bred Hamden and people who can't understand what people from Hamden are saying, people of all different colors, skin color, people of all different ages, people who are struggling to just even find out how are they going to eat tonight versus people who are, God has given them some ability to make a whole lot of money, people that every sociologist would say, what the heck is bringing you all here together? Do they just show really good videos at the church? Do they give like good popcorn or something? When people start to ask and, and they look and say, why do you gather with folks who don't look like you? Why do you care about the needs of the people who have nothing really to do with your own needs? Why are you desiring to love people which every social demographic study would say you have very little in common with? And all we can say is God. All we can say is God. Because there's some people out there that think, you know, I'm going to out-argue people to become a Christian. I'm just going to read as much as I can. I'm going to get all this information and knowledge. And I'm not downplaying that. I think that's important and good. You should. But ultimately, I think in our generation, in our culture, our greatest apologetic will be reconciliation. The best way that we are going to demonstrate who Jesus is in our life, when we are becoming brothers and sisters with people who we have nothing in common with. And people say, how the heck did that happen? God. That's the power of the gospel. To bring together everyone that CNN says, oh, they would love for us to be at our throats. Coming together, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of how much we have in our pocketbook, our income statement, regardless of how, much, uh, how educated we are, regardless of where, our, where we're from, regardless of our experiences, coming together to say, we're family. We're family, and only Jesus could do that. Reconciliation will be our strongest apologetic for the gospel in our generation. But guys, it's not easy. I mean, if it were, be, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. <laughs> it's what makes me cry out to God. A very regular prayer recently saying, God, if you're not going to do this, don't even let us try. If you're not going to do this, God, please don't even let us expend energy and money trying these things. But it's also the truth that if God is in it, there's nothing going to stop it. If God is in it, there is nothing that can stop it. And it'll roll like a river. As more and more people follow Jesus, more and more of you follow Jesus and go preach Jesus to people that might not be in here for like years. What would that look like? And it's, it's hard. It's not easy. Can, can we be real? Um, 
it is much easier to do church who are very, with people who are very culturally similar to you. It's, it's just a reality. It would be much easier to do church with people who come from similar backgrounds than you do. I, I, I hope you don't get offended when I say this. I feel much more just sociologically comfortable with Asians and with Koreans even more. And it's just weird. I'm trying not to, but there's just a reality. That's just the way it is. You are humanly just much more comfortable, but comfort doesn't always mean good. But it's hard, and it's so hard, it's going to require us to cry out to God because it's not going to be a nice program that we implement. Here's the multicultural church program that you can implement. And only $599.99, you can build a multicultural church too. Boop. Doesn't happen like that. It takes getting down and dirty. It takes getting out of your comfort zone. It takes extending yourself to people that you might not feel you have much to talk about. But saying, for the sake of the gospel, I will press my flesh into people that I have nothing in common with other than the fact that Jesus saved us both. It's going to require us to pray. It's going to require us to pray. So I'm going to end on that. Now I'm going to ask our worship team to come up and lead us in some songs as we cry out to God in prayer, as we pray for our city, as we pray for our church. You know, we say this over and over again. I don't know if you guys believe me. I never want to be part of a church that's just growing in number if we're not seeing our vision happen. With diverse groups of people being equipped to go out and leading, transforming our communities. If, if we're just going to be a church that's attracting people who are already looking for church, honestly, let's spend our money in better ways. Let's spend our time in better ways. But if God is going to do something what he seems to be doing, nothing will stop him. And I would encourage you, get on that. Get on that, because if God is moving something, you want to be part of that, because he will work in your life as well. But it's going to require us to get in action. But the first action has got to be getting on our knees in prayer. Saying, God, I need you. We need you. If you're not going to do this, please don't to hex send us. But if you are, give us the strength to live this out, as hard as it is. Because we need the reconciling power of Jesus who came to this earth and died for people who he had nothing in common with in our place. We need that power to unite us with one another. It's hard. We're going to get offended. You will get offended at someone in this church if you do it correctly. That's why we need Jesus. So we're going to pray as we sing. I'm going to invite you to do this. We've never done this in our church because we've always worried about how people are going to feel weird or not. I'm actually going to get on my knees and pray. And I'll invite any of you who want to pray with me. Don't worry about what people around you are doing. But if you feel this heart that you want to pray, come up here and join me. Get on your knees. And can we just pray out to God together? Cry out to God together? Saying desperately, we need you, Lord. We need you. So we're going to do that. We'll be on the sides here just to make room for people to receive communion. If you want to receive communion, come up. Take a piece of the wafer here in the middle and remember the body of Jesus. Dip it in a cup and remember the body and blood that was shed so that we could be reconciled to God but also to one another and demonstrate the power of the gospel in our midst. So receive that. And if you want to pray, feel free to join me up here on your knees. Let's just cry out to God together. Amen.